0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. And this is episode 134, Mercia, a new contender enters the ring. Okay, last episode we jumped forward a little bit to take the story of East Anglia to the point where Sigibert took the throne. But let's go back about three years, to 628-ish, and have a look at what's going on in Mercia. Mercia. The Midland Kingdom has been a bit of a backwater in our story so far, but it's about to get more important very soon, so we really should chat about it. So, Mercia, what exactly are we talking about here? Some of you might already be familiar with the Old Kingdom of Mercia through the Staffordshire Horde episodes, or maybe you know about Offa's Dyke. But let's cover what we know about this kingdom and give a rough outline of where it came from. Part of what makes it so interesting is how mysterious it is. Its beginnings are hazy and semi-mythical. Even when looked at in comparison with the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, they're still kind of mythical. I mean, we know about Wessex due to Alfred and his scribes. We know about Northumbria due to the efforts of Bede. But Mercia? There weren't any scribes writing down the story of Mercia from the Mercian perspective. At least not like some of the other kingdoms had. Basically, Mercia lacked an apologist. Sorry, Bede, but in some respects, that is what you were. For example, look at the free pass you gave Aethelfrith on that business with the monks. So, yeah, no apologist, and really not much of a written record. There's the hidage, which we're going to get to, but overall, there's just not a ton. But to start with, let's look at Mercia at its most basic level. And when we look, the name itself is a Latinized term for the name of the Old English Kingdom. And the name roughly translates to the border people. But what were they bordering? The assumption is that they were bordering the Welsh, given that their dynasty would claim to be Anglian, descendants of Ickel. But as you have learned in earlier episodes, this stuff often tends to be at least partially mythological, and backgrounds tend to be a great deal more complex than... Well, we're just all Anglian. That complexity is why we talk so much about ethnogenesis. And ethnogenesis seems to have been at play here, too. But let's get back to their name. So, really, who were they bordering? Well, their capital was Tamworth. And that's surprisingly close to Wales. If they were an Anglian kingdom bordering the Welsh, you would think they'd want their capital to be a bit further away from the Welsh. So rather than just assuming things, let's have a little bit of a look at the evidence. Bede, writing long after the period of time that our story is now in, described the Mercians as Anglian migrants from the continent. And this fit with his explanation that the migration was so intense that their former homeland, Anglia, was largely depopulated. However, as we talked about ages ago, his view of a mass migration is almost certainly incorrect. Most people living in Britain, whether they were culturally Anglo-Saxon or culturally British, were pretty much mostly genetically British, which tells us that there wasn't a massive influx and then an ousting of the Britons, at least not the way that some of the later sources would have us believe. And Mercia isn't a vast wasteland devoid of people, despite the rumors regarding some neighborhoods of Birmingham. And honestly, it wasn't then either. So given that the mass migration and displacement theory is all but debunked, and the fact that people have lived in that region for millennia, why do we have this concept of an Anglian kingdom? Well, Bede was almost certainly looking at the kingdom of Mercia from his 8th century vantage point and making certain assumptions about them. They looked Anglian, so it made sense that they would be descendants of the Angles, like some of the other eastern kingdoms and he didn't have the benefit of our modern understanding of how culture and ethnic identity is developed. The decision to dress and speak in a certain way isn't genetically encoded. You aren't born with a certain accent, but rather it's something that comes about socially. We don't need to go into it all over again, but these people almost certainly looked Anglian by the time of Bede. But that had more to do with the state of social codes, pressures, and general fashion than it had to do with someone's mitochondrial DNA. However, it does tell us something. When we look at the fact that we see Anglian clothing in Mercia as early as the 5th century, and even when we look at place names, we see a Germanic trend, what we're learning is that this marcher kingdom, which stood as a sort of middle ground between the Romano-British West and the Germanic East, had contact with their neighbors and was, at the very least, being influenced by that contact. Genetically, we know that the Brits weren't ejected from their lands the way Bede would have us imagine it, but the Anglian influence within Mercia cannot be denied. So Mercia were definitely the border people, but we shouldn't be too keen to assume that that name initially reflected a bordering with Wales. It might have, just as easily, been a bordering with the Germanic kingdoms of the East. Interesting, right? And while we're talking about foundational matters, Mercia has its own creation myth, just like Wessex and other kingdoms do. In fact, by the time of Bede, the Mercians were claiming to be related to famous Germanic heroes. Naturally. But really, when you have the lines of Kent and everyone else claiming to be connected to friggin' Woden, you might as well join in, but even before all that, we had the foundational myth that was told to us in the life of St. Guthlac, who you might remember from the Staffordshire Horde episodes. And it's there that we're told that the kingdom was founded by Ickle. And we're not given details about this foundation, but my guess is that in order to get his wereod to stop calling him Icky, he decided to conquer a kingdom. Sort of like an earlier version of William the Bastard going to extreme lengths to get a new nickname, William the Conqueror. So, Ickle... I won't call him Mickey anymore. Current thoughts are that he established the dynasty somewhere in the middle of the 5th century. So pretty early on in the migration period. And since Mercia is landlocked, if Ickel was Anglian, he would have had to have come inland from one of the Anglian kingdoms. Some scholars point to East Anglia as the point of origin for Ickle. And, I love this term, the Icklingas, the descendants of Ickel. And to be fair, I use the term foundation myth, which might give you the impression that this didn't happen. But Ickel very well could have been the first Anglian king of Mercia. It's hard to say for sure, though, which is why I described it as a myth. And the other reason why I use the term myth is because Ickel is a descendant of, you guessed it, Woden. And here's how mythological these genealogies are. Ickel's father great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather all appear in Beowulf. I'm just saying. But the point is that through characters such as Wehrmond, Ickel was able to give his line a noble and heroic past, as the deeds of his alleged ancestors would have been known through all the different songs and the like. And as for Woden, because yeah, he's connected to Woden as well, that seems to have been a pretty clear indication of a divine descent. But, not all scholars agree on that point, and some have argued that the connection to Woden was more like a connection to an original ruling line that had no divine nature. Like with everything else in this period, there's always room to argue. But the point is, that by the time we're seeing the genealogies and myths, it's pretty clear that the Iklingas wanted to go and establish that their founder came from a prestigious line that gave them the right to rule. And going forward in time, we know that Mercia was a kingdom by the time of Edwin because our favorite vagabond prince actually married Quenburg, who was the princess of Mercia, while he was on the run and presumably hiding out in the court of King Churl of Mercia. And with her, Edwin had two sons. Now, Churl, who is this guy? Well, it's hard to say. He doesn't appear in the genealogies, which is strange, because his predecessor, Pippa, was the great-great-grandson of Ickel But Churl seems to have come from nowhere. Henry of Huntington tells us that he was a kinsman of Pippa, but not directly on the line. But whatever the case, he only really ruled for about ten years. And his short rule might have been helped along by Aethelfrith, if you know what I mean. But even after that... Edwin ended up setting aside his daughter, and no descendant of Churl ended up ruling in Mercia. So he wasn't that important of a king from our perspective. And it's possible that his name in the histories is sort of a cruel nickname, since Churl is an unusual name, and basically it's like calling him King Farmer or King Hillbilly. So Churl is largely a non-issue for us. And he was followed by King Eowa, who is the son of Pippa, So it looks like after that strange blip on the genealogies, we're back to the direct line of Ickle. And it looks like during this period, Mercia was somewhat under the thumb of Northumbria and their powerful king, Edwin. So maybe calling Eowa a king is being kind of generous. Furthermore, we're not entirely sure if he ruled alone or if he had a joint kinship like that of Kent or East Anglia. It's hard to say for certain, but some scholars have argued that Eoa shared his duties with his brother, a name that might be familiar to you. And if he isn't now, he will be. A man by the name of Penda. So that's a rough outline of how we ended up in our current situation with the ruling class. And what about the kingdom that they ruled? Mercia, if you have an image of it in your mind's eye, it probably encompasses a very large section of land. Basically, all of the Midlands. But it wasn't always that way. But that being said, already at our point in the story, they were getting pretty big. So how did they go about that? Well, the way any hegemony increases its share of land and power. Through subprime loans, credit default swaps, and bailouts. (laughs) I kid, none of these kingdoms were too big to fail. Mercia extended its power through diplomacy and war. And what we think of as Mercia was actually a pretty large group of tribal communities, many of which would have been lost to time if they weren't detailed in the tribal hideage. And, many of them, the kingdom of Mercia would eventually dominate. And even within the record of land ownership, we do see that the, quote, Mercian territory tends to expand. So does that mean that Mercia was expanding its borders or merely bringing some existing communities under its control? I mean, it leads to an interesting issue. Basically, what is a Mercian? Is it someone living in the hideage that is demarcated as Mercia? Or were you Mercian once your community accepted the overlordship of Mercia? Or maybe you'd be considered Mercian simply through cultural drift. For example, if your community started to adopt the fashion of Anglian styles and started to identify with your Mercian neighbors rather than your British neighbors. Maybe that made you Mercian. Over time, there does seem to have been a sort of consolidation occurring within Britain, and many of the 35 tribal groups identified in the Hidage started to vanish. But how that occurred, and what the people thought about it as it was happening, is another matter. It's an interesting question, but I don't think anyone has an answer for it right now. But the point is that slowly the people of Mercia were consolidating their power and bringing more and more communities under their dominion, right around the same time that Edwin was starting to see his power collapse with the debacle that was the attempt to convert East Anglia. Furthermore, it's giving us the impression not of a firm border between these kingdoms, nor of powerful individual kingdoms that were destined to dominate all British life, but rather small tribal groups that rose in power in their own ways, a landscape that was much more porous than you might imagine, and a growing cultural identity that wasn't at all predetermined. And that expansion brings us to our first battle that Mercia would take part in. Sirencester that territory that was held by the British until Chalin and Cuthwine of the West Saxons came along and took it from them at the Battle of Durham in 577, that same battle where they killed Conmale, Condodon, and Ferrummail. So Sirencester was a West Saxon territory at this point, and it had been that way for about 50 years. And it was a fairly important bit of land as it commanded the Severn Valley, And, like I said, right at our point in history, at about 628-ish, the West Saxons were still holding it. Well, that's a problem for an ambitious Mercia, because it meant that the West Saxons had an easy launching pad to press further into their territory. And really, it made no sense for the West Saxons to control that area. The Severn Valley was much more easily accessed by the men of Mercia than the West Saxons. And don't forget that really for a king to hold a territory, he and his court needed to be actually able to get there. Taxes or rent were paid in things like food. So you actually needed to physically move around and grab those things. And the Severn Valley was a bit of a hike. Further, if Mercia wanted to gain in power and reach a point where they could challenge the power of Northumbria, who were still dominating Mercia despite their recent loss of East Anglian support, they would need more resources and war bands. And the Huessa, who were one of the tribal groups inhabiting that area, would certainly help in that regard. So pushing the West Saxons back to the south could as much as double the territory that Mercia would have had overlordship over. So, It was probably a good test balloon, and it would allow them to see if their forces were trained well enough and strong enough to later take on the formidable army of Edwin of Northumbria, should they need to. But there's another possible twist. According to some scholars, the West Saxons were paying Northumbria a rather sizable tribute as a result of their northern domination. And I suspect that's probably the case, too. Edwin was pretty powerful still, and after that brutal response to the assassination attempt that was made by the West Saxons, there were probably some rather significant amounts of retribution that took place. And if that's the case, then the West Saxons were kind of a puppet of Edwin, or at least subject to him. And if Mercia wanted to start to stretch out and expand its power, and take advantage of the fact that Edwin no longer had the support of East Anglia taking the Northumbrian ally that lay right on their southern border might have been a no-brainer. So this might not have just been a sneaky challenge to Edwin's power. It might have been a direct assault. But regardless of what the motivations were, we reach the Battle of Cirencester in 628-ish. Scholars do debate on this one and think that it might have been a few years later. But here we have our first record of Penda leading the warbands of Mercia and we aren't told much about this battle. In fact, we're told almost nothing, other than the fact that Penda was leading the Mercian army, and he faced off with the army of the West Saxons, led by Quichelm and Chinagills. Quichelm? I can hear you asking if this was the same Quichelm who ordered the failed assassination of Edwin. And the answer is, that is subject to debate. Maybe? Or maybe it was a different Quichelm, considering that, you know, he was alive. And Edwin didn't seem like he was the type of person to leave someone alive after he ordered his assassination. So that kind of makes you think maybe it was a different Quichelm. And those West Saxons weren't too original with names, which has led to a lot of discussion regarding genealogies. So it's quite possible that this was a different Quichelm. And some have argued that he was the son of chinegils But it's hard to say. And I know you're dying for some certainty, and I would love to give it to you. But you really should be wary of anyone who talks about this period and gives you a lot of certainties. There just aren't many. Anyway, there's another West Saxon leader that I mentioned in addition to Quichelm. Yep, King Chinnigils. And he was either the grandson or the great-grandson of King Cutha of Wessex. Do you remember him? Cutha was either the son of Chinric or the grandson of Chalon. Oh, Dark Ages, you never make anything easy, do you? But the point is that this Chinagill's guy was part of the West Saxon dynastic line that stretched all the way back to their earliest beginnings. So this looks like it was going to be a pretty big battle. And it probably was. I mean, you had multiple descendants of Woden facing off. It's going to be a big one. But we're hearing about it from the West Saxon point of view. And we hear almost nothing about it other than that Penda one terms were agreed to, and the Severn Valley was transferred to Mercian Control at the end of it, and became part of the territory of the Huissa, who appear to be subject to Mercia. That's about all we know. So yeah, it doesn't look like it went too well for the West Saxons, and they probably tried to write as little about it as possible. But, on the upside, Chinnigils and Quichelm both survived, so at least there's that. And now Mercia was holding a huge stretch of land. Not all of it, naturally, but things were starting to look up for them. Not only that, but Penda, possibly King Penda, had now proven himself to be a skilled battle leader. And he wasn't done yet. If you wanted to establish a powerful Midland kingdom, you would need to move in pretty much every direction simultaneously, quickly, and take the lads and men fast enough that his expansion couldn't be stopped. So yeah, the border people were probably causing a few of their rivals a little bit of heartburn. And my guess is that none more than a certain neighbor who shared a border with them to the north. Edwin, of Northumbria. Though, at the time, Edwin was a bit preoccupied by picking on his former Welsh allies, attacking his foster brother, and basically bullying everyone around him. Because, you know, who needs friends? Why bother being nice to people and engaging in diplomacy like he had done when he was younger when he could just throw some elbows and kick some teeth in? I can't imagine how that could possibly go wrong. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also go to Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash British History. And we've got all kinds of other resources, communities, and just all kinds of fun things to find. All you have to do is go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and just kind of have a poke around. I'm sure you'll find something you like. All right. Thanks for listening. And what they mm-hmm. used to be What about this overcrowded uh-huh. land How much more mm-hmm. be used from me Can't you stand